0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Bloomberg Intelligence Tech Disruptors podcast. My name is Jeff Langbaum. I'm the Senior REIT Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We're delighted today to have Charles Myers as our guest today, President and Chief Executive Officer at Equinix. Thank you, Charles, for joining us. Glad to be here. I'd like to start by congratulating you and Equinix on the company's turning 25 years old this year. Can you start by spending a little bit of time telling us about the company, about how it's evolved over its lifetime and where you sit today? Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, thanks for
1: having me here today. And I'm sure we'll have a good uh, have a good conversation they um so equinix has been around for as you said 25 years um it was started you know with a vision that somebody needed to sort of create a an enterprise that could care for some of the most important digital infrastructure assets on the planet as the internet really started to scale and uh, so we've been around with that mission for the last 25 years. I've been with the company now right about half of its existence. So I joined going on 13 years ago. So uh, amazingly, uh, been here almost half the entire time of the company being around. I uh, joined as uh, President of the Americas originally, uh, was Chief Operating Officer for a number of years, ran our um, sort of product organization, strategies and services and innovation for a few years, and then took over as CEO in uh, 2018. But the company has, uh, you know, have been on an incredible growth path over that period of time and uh, continues to play a really critical role in serving the
0: digital infrastructure needs of a lot of the, you know, sort of prominent digital brands across the world. So the name of the podcast is Tech Disruptors. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, how do you think about Equinix as a disruptor in the data center space or, or maybe asked a different way? What makes Equinix unique versus other data center operators in kind of how you how you fit into the space?
1: I think you know we think about ourselves really as an enabling force. And as you look at, I think the level that digital is having uh, across industries, um it's pretty significant. And I think the role that uh, that we really play is enabling that disruption, enabling people to harness the power of digital and to you know deploy digital infrastructure in a way that allows them to digitally transform their businesses in ways that I think are candidly necessary for them to compete successfully in the modern age. And, you know, I think one of the things that we saw perhaps very acutely out of the pandemic was the importance of digital and that companies that were prepared for digital, you know, the uh, the digital reality of a more digitally centric world were outperforming those that were less ready. Um, and I think that has not only continued, but accelerated out of the back end of the pandemic. And now I think you're seeing, you know, digital transformation as a board level priority. And I think where we come in is we really are enabling people to think differently about that and to really adapt to, you know, a different model of building and managing and, and operating uh, digital infrastructure uh, from, you know, what I think people did many years ago, which is build, deploy, own and operate all of their own infrastructure to now much more a world that is very cloud centric and very uh, oriented around sort of hybrid and multi-cloud as the architecture of choice. And I think Equinix plays a really unique role in helping people build the infrastructure that
0: they need to make digital competitive advantage. So it's interesting that you mentioned cloud, right? So I think broadly the shift to cloud is perceived by many as a potential disruption of your business yeah. rather than something that you can participate in and, you know, help move forward. But I'm I'm not sure that's accurate. And, and I was hoping that you could maybe walk us through a little bit kind of how you interact with the cloud providers like the AWS's sure. and, and Google Clouds of the world how they fit within your infrastructure and how you work with them, how they work with you and then all your other customers as well.
1: Absolutely. And and it probably gets to a little bit of the question you previously asked that maybe I didn't fully answer. And that is how is Equinix different? I think that people think about the data center business sort of more holistically or homogeneously. And it's really, it's not a homogenous market. It is, you know, it's very different sort of sub markets within the data center space. And I think you know, if people think about data centers as simply a place to, you know, house and cool, you know, to, uh, for technical space that is cooled and, and connected to networks. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's really a lot more than that in the you know, in a more cloud centric world. And I think where Equinix differentiates itself is a couple of dimensions. One, the infrastructure has become very heavily distributed as applications have been, have really become the core of digital infrastructure in order for applications to perform today with a, a very distributed. Uh, use of data and the distributed users that are, you know, uh, taking advantage of those applications. Infrastructure needs to be distributed globally, and so, and we have data centers now, 250 data centers, almost in 71 markets around the world, and that that need for distributed infrastructure and in our global reach is a key part of our differentiation. Secondly, it's not only, you know, sort of where you place your infrastructure for it to perform, it's how you can interconnect it to all the parties and the data that it needs to be interconnected to. And and that's really where we are, you know, distinguished. I think we we house some of the most, you know, comprehensive digital ecosystems inside of our facilities around the world. And the cloud players, to get to your most recent question, are really central to that. A lot of people are placing significant percentages, perhaps the supermajority of their workloads into public cloud. And they believe that they get, you know, agility benefits. Um, in doing that flexibility. Uh, they like the as a service consumption model. So as they move to that, they they realize that they need their private infrastructure to interact effectively with the cloud. And so the the unique role that uh, Equinix plays is this point of nexus uh, between private infrastructure that they may still own and operate in clouds where they're placing a lot of these, uh, you know, these workloads now. And so and as such, cloud has been one, we're a key part of the cloud provider's infrastructure themselves, and we can talk more about that. And then, you know, enterprises and service providers are using us to really, you know, ensure that their private infrastructure interacts appropriately with the cloud.
0: So let's let's continue on the, the cloud topic. And you mentioned you near know, the cloud providers, you're being a part of their infrastructure as well. One of the areas of potential concern is having them use third party space versus their own space. And sure. does the economic environment that we're entering into or that we may be entering into, you know, who, who really knows exactly, does that impact Spending decisions of counterparties like that and what they want to have on their own balance sheet versus elsewhere. How is that evolving? And sure. as we look ahead into 2023?
1: Well, one, I think it's important to think, you know, sort of understand the extent and the complexity of cloud providers' infrastructure um, because it includes a lot of things and people think mostly about saying well somewhere this cloud exists in some massive data center where all the servers that house these VMs or other other things live and that's true that's a part of their infrastructure and those are what people, you know, like AWS would refer to as an availability zone, you know, is a, a large-scale data center that that includes all that and, and other, you know, other infrastructure providers like a, you know, an Azure or a, you know, a Google Cloud or you know, have similar approaches. But then those are interconnected back to networking nodes and also to places where enterprise customers might interface to have private connectivity into those clouds because. What people are finding is is they really need that from a performance standpoint and often a security standpoint is some level of private interconnection and so you have all these cloud providers uh, whether it be aws with their uh, direct connect offer or microsoft with you know their express route offer these are all ways that uh, they they allow people to to have private connectivity in their cloud service offerings. And so we do compete in terms of providing the large-scale data centers for the availability zones, but we do that uh, through a joint venture that we created with the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Singapore, GIC. And you're right in that they sometimes decide to self-provide. So they build some of those data centers themselves, but sometimes they use third parties. Uh, and we, we, through our X-Scale, would be one of those. But, you know, their growth has been so incredible that they really haven't been able to keep up on their own. And so they're still relying pretty heavily on third parties and and ebbs and flows a little bit based on a variety of factors. But I think that they would tell you that they don't believe that they can do all of it themselves and they still are going to rely on third parties. And so. That's really the, the case on the large-scale data centers. But then they're really, in in many ways, the most important piece that we provide, well, there's underlying network nodes, private cloud on-ramps. We have about 40% share of cloud on-ramps around the world with the largest five cloud providers. And uh, that's really a, a central piece of how we're different and how we support their infrastructure.
0: I think helps a lot with the understanding of how everything fits together. Um, one thing that That I have found fascinating as I've been thinking about your business is the ecosystem business model and how you basically clustered in many ways um, and how that draws tenants to your particular locations. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the ecosystem business model, um, the interconnectivity within that, but then also you brand this platform Equinix. And I was wondering if you could maybe walk through that as well. I I think that might fit together with the ecosystem discussion.
1: I'll take you back a little bit and talk a little bit more about the history of the company because I think that highlights it. You know, in the early days of the internet, you had you know the scaling of the internet was was really created by eyeballs, you, people who brought users to the table wanting to connect with content, and so you had the you know the providers like the AOLs of the world and and, and back in the day CompuServe and various other people, um, and on the other side all the content that people were wanting to get to, and they. They were, you know, really driving demand for these internet exchange points. And, you know, what Equinix really observed or the founders of Equinix observed was a need to provide, you know, sort of a point of interconnection and scalable commercial uh, support of that model, because frankly, the internet was sort of, you know, wavering under its own weight in the early days. And, you know, so we brought those people together and created these early exchange points, And what's happened, though, is interestingly, these ecosystems give rise to other ecosystems. And so, you know, we had the network providers on one side of things um, and the content providers on, on another side of things, you know, in these early, early days of platform Equinix. Then network providers started to realize, well, wait a second, we're already both at Equinix. So to the extent we need to interconnect our networks, we can do that there. And it really gave rise to a very robust network ecosystem. And in fact, a a key point of differentiation for Equinix is we have literally more than a thousand networks, you know, popped into our facilities around the world and interconnecting with each other. And that, you know, that is a very healthy and robust network ecosystem. And then And those have given rise over time to other ecosystems like for example, and I think you might've had the opportunity to tour one of our data centers in the New Jersey area where We built really, you know, one of the largest and most powerful electronic trading ecosystems uh, in the world. And so that happened because electronic trading is very dependent on networks. And they said, look, if we're going to do that, if we're going to place our infrastructure somewhere, placing it proximate to the networks gives us both performance and uh, cost advantages. And so they started doing that. And then all the people that needed to connect into these matching engines for the purpose of electronic trading sort of built up a really, you know, sort of significant ecosystem. And that has repeated itself, whether it be ad tech or financial services and trading. And now really the cloud has become its own very sort of super ecosystem that is really built up uh, inside of platform Equinix around the world. And so that's really what happens. And it's not so much about just the data centers itself. We certainly build, you know, world-class data centers, but what really drives people is their desire to interconnect with their other partners and whether it be other infrastructure providers, networks, clouds, et cetera, or other business partners. And now in the cloud world, a whole range of as a service, you know, players, SaaS players, um, you know, workday, Salesforce, etc., et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, that's really how these ecosystems have evolved and they've really become a critical part of the, of the differentiating, you know, factor that Equinix relies on
0: does that have any bearing on the underlying economics of your business in terms of you know the rent you can charge fees you can charge obviously you would think that the desire to be in a particular location adjacent to other tenants puts uh, demand in excess of supply and you know provides a landlord advantage how does how do you how does that flow through to pricing and and you know the negotiation of leases and things like that
1: undoubtedly it does and so you know we have in fact we have always been positioned in the market as a player that is somewhat of a premium play uh in that we are typically if on a price per kilowatt or price per square foot basis of what you could buy other more commoditized co-location for is operates at a premium there and the the reason is because uh, one you know, our cost to deliver these, this robust ecosystem is higher in that we deliver superior value to the customer. And so we're less interested in just large undifferentiated co-location and really instead about saying, select those portions of your infrastructure that need to interface with the ecosystem in order to achieve the performance and the economics you need, place those at Equinix. You'll pay a little more for that, but your total cost of ownership. And your experience for your customers and your performance are going to be superior. And that's really, that's what's differentiated us. And yes, it has allowed us to really deliver exceptional returns. I, I'll give you something you can sort of hang your hat on from a numeric standpoint. And that is they talk about same store sales in a REIT model. Um, and we have a are stabilized assets in terms of what are stabilized in, on nearly you know, highly utilized data centers what kind of return they're providing. And we provide uh, about a 30% return on the in, uh, invested capital into those on a cash-on-cash basis, which is significantly above the return levels that you would see in most other data center businesses. And we've been able to sustain those returns over time because we deliver really superior value to the customer.
0: I want to pursue the the value to the customer a little bit further. And and one way I want to maybe think about it is in in the spirit of disruption, right, for the theme of the podcast, I would gather that many of your customers are interested in disrupting some business of their own. Can you give some examples of how customers use their relationship with Equinix to help them do that and to put some more clarity on the specific value that they're getting out of it?
1: i think it can be a range of things it can it can range from you know entirely new variants of traditional businesses that are now more digitally native and people think about the uber and the airbnbs of the world as people that have taken digital takes on traditional businesses and disrupted those those industries entirely and i think you now see that almost any sector of the economy use you, you know you see people are saying they have to begin to think differently about how they deliver their services to their customers what the customer's experience looks like how they pay for them how they're supported all those things you know that's where things are going and people i think in order to avoid disruption or to you know or to be the beneficiary of disruption they're betting heavily on digital and so all of those things require you to think differently about how you store and move data, for example, how you use technologies like AI. And, and a variety of those things have been built up in terms of those are the kinds of counterparties that people are connecting to at Equinix and enabling their business to be, one, more you know, digitally adept and then also more efficient. Um, actually, one of the podcasts I listened to a few of the uh, the podcasts as I was preparing for this, and and uh, they they had Chris Beatty from ServiceNow on um, in one of the other um, disruptor podcasts, and uh, you know he was talking about how ServiceNow is essentially helping people digitize all kinds of workflows across their business to enhance efficiency and productivity um, in the business, and so it's not just about becoming digitally adept. It's also about competing effectively and becoming more efficient and productive in a world where, frankly, people are looking to do more with less, and
0: digital is a really central part of that. How do you think about expanding your portfolio reach? Demand is robust. I think many of the markets here in the U.S. are largely built out, maybe more mature. I know you've got, you know, reach into various other parts of the globe. How do you think about building that out, expanding to certain places? How does everything connect together? Can you walk through your kind of development expansion model a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, it really is driven by, you know, traffic flows and how people think about those. And it differs a little bit across regions based on how networks have evolved and matured. It it differs a little bit between more deregulated markets and more regulated markets. But, you know, essentially we have built facilities around these key points of digital interconnection over the years. And so if you look in the U.S., you know, our really large campuses are in Northern Virginia, which is really what used to be, you know, one of the original points of interconnection for the internet and it really built up around that um, and is now the largest single single largest data center market in the world in northern virginia interestingly but then other strategic points of interconnection where traffic flows really come together in order to deliver the necessary levels of performance and those are in markets like new york new jersey chicago dallas you know silicon valley etc and that has repeated itself around the world um, and one of the things that we clearly differentiate on is our ability for people to place infrastructure in in a geographically distributed way to meet their performance requirements. And so that's why we have grown our business both organically and through M&A to now become by far the most comprehensive footprint uh, in the world in 71 markets in, you know, I think around uh, uh, 30 countries. It's, uh, I say around because I literally lose track. It's like I usually get the number wrong because we've added another country, since the last time I quoted the statistic, that geographic reach is really important. And, and in terms of how we scale, It really is just tracking, you know, demand from the customers, our utilization, our centers, and and being able to trigger new builds with sufficient lead time to ensure that we can get that capacity online before we're fully utilized. And I will tell you that uh, over the last uh, several years, it's been a, a battle to try to keep up with the demand because, uh, you know, we've seen an acceleration of demand in some markets and they've forced it to trigger builds faster than we had originally anticipated it. But we've become, you know, very good at that. And I think we're investing you know, well more, you know, probably two to three billion dollars of expansion capital every year to, you know, add more capacity and geographic, you know, reach of our platform continues to be a key priority for us. And there's uh, we can talk more about, you know, markets where I think we see more opportunity for that. Um, but there, there definitely are more of them. You know, we we certainly
0: haven't reached uh, the whole world yet and we have uh, more more to do. Why don't we just continue on this topic, Ben? And are there any particular markets or regions that you're looking to either add scale or places where you aren't currently located that would be targets to get your portfolio exposure to?
1: Right now, I believe we have build projects active in 46 of our markets around the world out of 71, right? You know, and so that means we're actually in the process of adding capacity in, you know, the bulk of our footprint. And that's just a reflection, I think, of the kind of demand that we're seeing. And in terms of new markets, um, you know, we've been very active over the last several years in terms of adding key geographies. And M&A has been a key part of that. Um, I'll give you a couple of really good examples. India, has been a very large market that was not sort of on our platform until a couple of years ago when we purchased a company called GPX uh, based in Mumbai, a very interconnection centric, very rich ecosystem of their own. And so it really fit with our strategy. But now now that we have sort of planted the flag in, in India, if you will, we see a bunch of opportunity because we're in Mumbai. we've already announced a project in Chennai, and we think that there's, you know, a number of additional markets, you know, Hyderabad, Delhi, Bangalore, to still to expand into. So I would expect that would be one market. Uh, we also had our first entry into Africa through an acquisition of Maine One. Um, in Nigeria, in d'Ivoire, we're, we're active in Africa. And so that, I think, will be additional opportunity. And we just re- announced an organic build in South Africa. I think Africa will be a, a longer, you know, a longer uh, story over the next many years. Um, but I think that's uh, an area of growth. And then we've uh, recently announced a couple of new projects in Southeast Asia. And that's that's also, I think, going to be a significant area of further expansion for us um, as traffic flows continue to retool a little bit around the re of China and Hong Kong and and Singapore,
0: et cetera. And so I think we're seeing real demand in Southeast Asia as well. So one thing you mentioned a little while ago was a struggle to keep up with the demand and keep the new additions in the portfolio ahead of the amount of demand. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the challenges there is access to power, the electricity that is required for a, a site how are you managing that? A, correct me if I'm wrong on that, whether or not that's a, a pain point, but also, if so, how do you manage that as you, you know look to bring these heavy power using facilities online as you grow?
1: Obviously, uh, the data center business is, in fact, you know, a meaningful consumer of power. Power is a critical, you know, is really the critical underlying requirement for the infrastructure builds. And so gaining access to power is critically important to us. And it is something that I think we actually have have invested heavily in in terms of, making sure that our relationships with uh, sort of local utilities as well as local regulators are such that we can uh, gain access to that power and have it permitted uh, for our needs. But I do think that intersects a little bit with a another emergent
0: topic that we may want to cover a little bit, and that is sustainability. We definitely want to cover sustainability, so <laughs> jump, jump right in.
1: No, so it's, I mean, because, you know, we also have to be moving towards more natively sustainable energy that's sustainable at its source. And so we've been investing in, you know, on the topic of disruption, since that's the theme of the podcast, we're actually investing in things like onsite power generation using fuel cells. Um, And so that's another way for us to ensure the availability of power. And so it's a combination of factors. We do work really closely with utilities you know for example northern virginia has been a point of constriction if you will uh, in that uh, the availability of power there has been a question mark because we have such a long standing relationship with the providers there and we have uh, such a diverse set of of existing facilities We've been able to sort of use the power that we've already been allocated most effectively in order to give us, you know, really confidence in our continued ability to build. And so we have that kind of thinking around the world and uh, gaining access to power and getting it permitted
0: and also doing that sustainably is, uh, is a key priority for us. Any, anything else, um, you know, on the on the sustainability side that you're doing? You obviously ha- have a, a large portfolio of assets. You're everywhere. What can you as such a large, important enterprise be doing to improve the overall sustainability beyond just your power access?
1: We believe that from a strategic standpoint, we have to be at the leading edge of sustainability in the data center space in order to continue to extend our, our leadership over time. We were actually the first in the data center space to commit to be fully climate neutral. Uh, we have that commitment to be that by by 2030. Um, and I think we're going to need to continue to up the game to full carbon neutrality in, in some reasonable timeframe as well. And so we're continuing to work through the details of those commitments, um, but we've uh, We've already um, put out our science-based targets in terms of really having a credible, fully plan of how we're going to get there. Um, that means really committing to 100% renewable energy across our platform. We would like to do the bulk of that at the source um, in markets like Europe, that's that's readily possible. There are some markets, though, in the Americas and in Asia where it's very difficult and you have to essentially purchase offsets or other sources of power that are going to. Uh, so we have virtual purchase power agreements um, where we're buying wind power or other types of power that will offset power that is not organic or sustainable source at the source. And so those are commitments that we've made, um, and we've really invested heavily in terms of building a full sustainability team here that is looking not only at power but other sustainability factors, including water use. Water is obviously an incredibly uh, important resource for the well-being of our planet, and so we have to be thinking about how to use that most uh, most uh, judiciously in in, uh, in our footprints around the world. And so, uh, and we are uh, interestingly, we're looking at. A number of areas where we want to take some of the heat we generate and apply that to other uses in our in the communities that we serve. So, uh, an interesting one is we're actually going to be heating the Olympic pool in Paris using heat that's being taken from our from our data center. And so, uh, you know, it's those those kind of things. Some of the areas that we're really
0: innovating, you know, on the sustainability front. So, so now we're disrupting the Olympics. I, I didn't think we would be getting, getting there. Uh, I, I read something recently, I think, about increasing the temperatures in your facilities. Y- you know, I think there was some back and forth that I was hearing about whether or not that's a, a good thing, whether, whether there's risk to that for your customers. Obviously, there's benefit to that from power usage. Is that something that you could kind of dive into a little bit further?
1: We, we announced that we were gonna to move to what they really refer to as Ashray allowable. And Ashray is sort of one of the, Andrew's bodies in, the, in, that, in that sort of space. And we've been working very closely with our customers. And I will tell you that the largest and most sophisticated customers are very supportive of that move and believe that they can continue to operate at those standards and have their equipment fully still maintain the the life cycle that is uh, is required and deliver in all ways from a reliability perspective, but then also contribute to being able to have substantially more efficient use of our power in the facilities. So it'll be a journey. It's going to happen over a few years. And so I do think, you know, customers need to be yeah, right alongside with us as we do that so that uh, they can plan effectively for that. But, you know, I think that also the technologies and even the chips and all of that they go into and the servers are really already being designed for that. And there's a number of other you know, things that we're looking at in terms of how we will cool differently over time. So it's, le- it's less about, you know, I think over time it's going to be less about uh, the air cooling and the where the, te- the thermostat is set and other ways to also more efficiently cool, including in some facilities, um, you know, liquid cooling and using, you know, either at the server or at the chip level as, you know, power densities rise, using other technologies
0: like liquid cooling, which is just a substantially more efficient way to cool. You think about what data centers may look like at some point in the future, and <clears throat> I don't want to put a time frame on it, but down the road, what, what may look different about your business, about, about the types of, of assets that you own or how, or how they look and operate versus kind of how the legacy business has looked? I mean, I think they'll
1: evolve in a few different ways. I think the actual design of the facilities, I think from a cooling standpoint, from an energy standpoint, things like fuel cells, and eventually the move from even fuel cells that today are powered by natural gas, which is substantially more sort of sustainable than traditional coal-fired energy and those kind of things, but eventually moving to really hydrogen-based. And I think then you're talking about really being able to deliver a completely different picture from a sustainability perspective. But I I think that's further out there. But it's ones that we're already thinking about and planning for. And in fact, the fuel cells that we're using from companies like Bloom Energy and others already are you know have been designed from the get go about you know with a, with a future towards hydrogen. So I think they'll look different in those ways. I also think the mix of business is going to look different. We um, one of the things we haven't talked about that we might want to is an area of disruption in our business. Certainly, is thinking about not just traditional co-location where people. Are are buying space and uh, power, and then they're putting equipment in there and and managing it, and instead now wanting to evolve to a more as-a-service model and buying what we refer to as digital services. We have a, a product that we call Equinix Metal, which allows people to essentially buy dedicated servers on demand from us and spool them up, rapidly in the same way they do sort of with VMs on the, on a cloud, like uh, like an AWS or an Azure, etc. And that's a much more as a service oriented delivery offer, right? or, you know, service offering. And so I think you're also going to see those things really become prominent. And even the way people use interconnection and networking going where they're now using a, a breadth of our Equinix fabric, which is a fully SDN, software enabled interconnection fabric, and using that in tandem with traditional Additional fiber interconnection, which is still and will probably always be sort of the most advantaged from a unit economic standpoint, but people are using those two things together. And so so I think from both facility design, interconnection, cooling, all of those things are going to, I think, evolve in terms of how our data centers, you know, look over time. And I think it depends a little bit. I mean, I think are the very large scale data centers like those that we build in Xscale, scale I think we'll have a different set of innovations maybe than than what the uh, interconnection centric retail data centers that make up sort of a, a really big piece of our overall footprint those will those will probably evolve in different ways.
0: So let's bring it back I guess in a little bit more immediate time frame and let's think about 2023 obviously kind of very interesting times from a macro perspective. When you look ahead for the next, you know, 12 months or so, what do you view as Equinix's biggest market opportunity for this, you know, coming 12-month period?
1: I think, you know, for that period and probably beyond, it is going to continue to be around Being a critical enabler of the digital transformation requirements of both service provider customers and enterprises who are looking to reframe and reshape their businesses. And I think that demand for digital transformation, I think, is going to be the driving force. And we continue to see strong, you know, really strong pipeline, strong demand signals from the market. And I think that's going to be the big opportunity. And I think it's going to require us to, you know, one, continue to differentiate as we did on the dimensions I talked about earlier in terms of our geographic reach and the density of our ecosystems and all the counterparties that people can connect to, Uh, but then also evolving our service portfolio and adding some of these digital services that are more agile and more, uh, more flexible for customers. And so I think those are big opportunities. The demand for digital transformation and the infrastructure to support it are something that I think we're going to see, you know, be very persistent um, in the coming years because people are are really prioritizing that. And and part of it, you know, people talk a lot about, hey, in a in a recessionary environment where people maybe are pulling back, or how is that going to impact demand? What we've seen is they actually see digital as part of the process of getting more for less. Uh, you know, they, they often are saying, how can we bend the cost curve in our business? And digital is one of the key ways to do that. And I think we can really be
0: supportive of, of uh, them, you know, implementing those strategies. And what about the biggest risks for the coming 12 months? And, and I'm going to not allow you to answer recession or inflation or interest rates, because obviously those are widely known and sure. kind of everybody's already thinking about them. But is any anything specific, unique to your business that you look at as real risk for the coming 12 months?
1: Interestingly, I think one of the things that we have seen is that the ability to get all the resources necessary to continue to deliver the supply. I, I, I told somebody the other day that I frankly was more, had more concerns on the supply side of our business than I do on the demand side of our business. In other words, I think... Demand signal continues to be strong for all the reasons that I just described to you. It's often a very competitive market, a market like Paris, where actually the uh, Olympics are coming. Uh, You know, we just talked about that. And it, it makes it tough to actually just get all of the labor needed to actually do that. And so... I think it's really going to be on on the supply side. Now we, I think we have some natural advantages because of the scale of our business, because of our existing relationships that give us confidence that we can deliver that. But I think that's going to be a key thing. And as you said, you know, the power is another key part, right? You know, which is um, ensuring that we have availability of power that we can manage the risks associated with possible constrictions of power in certain markets and those kind of things but we're designed for that I mean that's one of the things that uh, that people have to remember is that these are critical infrastructure facilities that are designed to to deal with that uh, that reality and power and it's just something that we're going to continue to focus on
0: great right. well I think that that pretty much uh wraps us up. I, for one, am fascinated with everything that you guys are doing and how you're building out this infrastructure smack in the middle of a world of technology that, as a read analyst, I completely don't understand. But I want to thank you, Charles, for for joining us and telling your story. And I think that this was great. And thank you very much. And thank you for all to the listeners for joining in. Pleasure.
1: Thanks for having me, Jeff.